0: Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, a special programme to mark the second anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Russia had already annexed Crimea in 2014 and separatists backed by Moscow also sparked fighting in Ukraine's Donbass region in the same year. The world mostly looked the other way, until Russia launched a full-scale invasion of its neighbour two years ago, on the false pretext that it was seeking to denazify Ukraine. Utter nonsense. Since then, more than 42,000 Ukrainian troops are thought to have been killed, and 11,000 civilians. Russia's losses are thought to exceed 150,000 soldiers. We're turning over the rest of this episode to reports gathered by Zarina Zabrisky, who has been covering the conflict from Ukraine for the Byline Times. There is some amazing insight here, combining military perspectives, stories of ordinary life in a war zone and a real culture war. Bear in mind that this audio has been gathered in extremely difficult circumstances, so it may not always be pristine, but I hope you'll agree that the content is compelling and of real consequence. Our narrator is Paul Conroy, a war photographer who is also with Zarina in Ukraine.
1: We'll be bringing you some regional reports, military and hybrid war analysis, political, economical and cultural analysis. First, we go over to Svet Jacqueline, an American journalist reporting from Donbass and Zephiresia.
2: Last year, I was in Slovyansk, and these back cities of Donbass, Slovyansk, Kramatorsk, Struzvika, Konstoknivka, they sort of have endured a little bit of shelling over over the course of this invasion, but going back just this past week, they've just been shelling it constantly. It probably resembles her son Advika fell, and it allowed Russia to advance to a position where all of their artillery can hit these back cities. At the actual announcement of the collapse, the city, no, you could not enter. Eight out of 10 cars were shelled immediately for trying to enter Advika. And so we got as close as we could into a bordering village, which is actually already now occupied by Russia. That's how quickly they're moving right now in this region. And we talked to the 3rd Assault Brigade, which is formally Azov. They're one of the more strong experienced brigades that Ukraine has on the front lines. And so they were brought in in the east to fortify the positions right before the city fell. And they described it as worse than Mariupol or Maksim in terms of what they had to endure and the strategies that Ukraine was using to try to defend itself. They said they were outnumbered by artillery 10 to one. There was not clear communication amongst different brigades. The 110 Brigade has been responsible for holding down Adika since the beginning. And they sort of know the city in and out. And instead of having like a central point of communication with them, they just started sending in like other brigades. They said it was a chaos, it was a bloodbath. Third Brigade was able to get their people out, but the picture that they paint for Ukraine is just, it's heartbreaking. It's the first time that in the two years that I've been reporting on the front lines that I feel a bit concerned about the the future of this country and the future of the East. And now that it's fallen, they're fighting in fields, they're fighting, they don't have any actual city structure to use as fortification. After the front lines, you have a back line and then a line behind that. And, you know, in theory, there should be massive backup for Ukraine. And uh, again and again, the soldiers would say they would look behind them and there'd be nothing there. And they knew there was no one there. And it's the same situation in the south. We are with a brigade that's sort of between Robotny and uh, Orkiv. It was in the southwest of the region. The, the two regions share a similar need. The difference is that Right now, what they're dealing with is the fact that this is previously occupied. So their front line is beyond fields and fields of mined Russian, formerly occupied Russian space. And they said that they're losing more men trying to get to their trenches than they are in the actual trenches. And there just hasn't been anyone there to demine these fields. And the shelling is just constant. I mean, I, I can really not stress that enough from both these regions that I was in, it's just so much artillery is incoming that it makes it really hard to regain a systemic approach to fighting in in these positions. I know that they are using artillery um, and aerial bombings in in both these regions. There is not enough things to be said about how much they're lacking um, and how much they're having to withstand in comparison to Russia, who has just endless amounts of. Weaponry, it seems, you know, they they have to be so strategic in everything they do because they simply do not have enough to take a risk and just shoot at a position. They they literally have to know it's gonna hit because it's the only rocket they have. I, I would say one of the, the the biggest issues is the deficit of our, our artillery in the Ukrainian armed forces. They are outnumbered in in every regard in terms of their supply and what they're able to do in an offensive and defensive strategy. Soldiers coming out of Advika were completely shredded. It was very hard to get interviews with them, and not just because of the bureaucracy of getting interviews with soldiers, but because they were just so exhausted and emotionally spent. They they literally were like, we cannot physically talk to them right now. And that's obviously in like a very specific situation. I think generally along the Eastern Front, the morale is... It's not great, but every single soldier that I talk to, as much as they explain a reality of a doomsday scenario that could be possible, they also say they will never stop fighting for Ukraine. So I think that there is this sort of inherent persistence within most of the men in the army right now and women that there, there is no way to stop and that fuels a more positive outlook.
1: Next we go over to Kate Bohuslavska, reporting from her hometown of Kharkiv.
3: Hi, my name is Kate. I live in Kharkiv, a very eastern city of Ukraine that is unfortunately getting bombed and terrorized by Russia from the very first day of Russian full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Kharkiv is located so close to Russian border that Russia often uses it to bomb Kharkiv from Russian territory. Um, from the territory of Belgorod region. And to reach Kharkiv, the Russian missiles from Belgorod region need only about 40 seconds to maybe two minutes of time, which makes it impossible for Ukrainian air defense to not only intercept those missiles, but often even take those missiles. For Kharkiv citizens, it means that bombings of Kharkiv usually start very unexpectedly without any warning. Things just start to explode. It makes life in Kharkiv a very difficult roller coaster for every citizen. But we are blessed with the very best um, first responders, firefighters, doctors, police officers who are trying to do everything they can to minimize the damage and rescue as many people as possible every single time. City authorities also react very fast trying to clean the streets and return life to normal as soon as possible. We are also blessed with the best citizens who keeps working, living and refuses to give up, keeping the moral high and keeps on fighting. We are going to keep fighting and you, please, keep fighting for military assistance for Ukrainian army. Do not give up on us. Thank you.
1: Next we go to Victoria Rudenka, a videographer reporting from her hometown of Kyiv.
4: Hi everyone, my name is Victoria and I'm from Kyiv. At first sight, living in the capital of Ukraine may seem normal. People are working, children are going to schools, you can go to any bar or restaurant with your friends in the evening, but this all works till the air raid alarm goes off. Kiev is situated on the two banks of Dnipro River, so when it goes off, the city is partially paralyzed. Some bridges and overground stations are closing, shopping centers stop working, and you need to look for a bomb shelter. Usually, air alarm during the day is because of supersonic fighter called MiG flying near our borders, which mostly, thanks God, is just a training flight. So honestly, just a small amount of people are looking for a bomb shelter during the day. But the situation at night and early morning is completely different. This is the time when massive attacks are usually being done. Russians use everything. They use Shahid drones, cruise missiles, hypersonic missiles and ballistic missiles. I'm really scared of the last ones, because it takes only two minutes from Russia to fly to Kiev and uh, I remember when just around 3 a.m. I woke up from the intense explosions and everything that I could do just ran to my corridor. Such big attacks can be repeated, I think, twice a month now. However, last May it was every other day. Just a few minutes after explosions you can hear the sound of emergency services driving to the places where they are needed. The mayor of Kiev always notifies citizens what and in which district happened. In the morning, a bunch of volunteers are ready to help sort out debris. On Instagram, you can see posts where people are collecting money for the victims, so everyone is involved to help with aftermath. So, living in Ukraine is a Russian roulette. Of course, Kiev has the best air defense thanks to our West partners – But even hearing it working affects your mental health and after you can be scared even of some domestic unexpected sounds. But despite all of this, Ukrainians are ready to sleep in the bomb shelters, they are ready to support army and they are ready to fight to be free from this evil.
1: Next we're going to go to Mikhail Stechel, a Ukrainian journalist reporting from Odessa.
5: Odessa is being bombarded by drones and sometimes by missiles on quite a regular basis. A few times a week we can hear air raid alerts and have to run for shelter for not to be killed or wounded by Iranian-made shaheds which are being launched by Russians somewhere from occupied Crimean Peninsula. Often these drones hit residential buildings high-rises on the seaside Last year the impact was much worse, we didn't have electricity for quite a long time, sometimes we didn't have water supply. Now thanks to air defense efforts, it's quite fine. Local people actively returned to the city of Odessa after first half a year maybe of full-scale invasion. And now there are lots of people in the streets, lots of cars in the streets. Moreover. People from occupied Kherson and Zaporizhia regions, sometimes from Donbass, they go to Odessa to live here and to start their life from scratch here in Odessa. I cannot say that many people are preparing to leave to Europe or United States again. Those who I talked to prefer to stay in their home city, in their home country and to do what they can for the war to be over. I cannot truly say that local authorities are doing enough to ensure the safety of the local population. I suppose we still don't have enough shelters and people possibly are not hiding in them because they don't know how to get there, where to run, and they have no guarantee that the the shelters which they would visit will be decent and proper and accustomed to long waiting. At the same time... Local emergency services are doing a great job putting out fire, which starts after drone hits, speaking with injured people, with psychologically damaged people. I know that there are special psychology squads at the rescue service in Odessa region who always work at the site of missile or drone hits and who are always open and ready to help to local people. International efforts, if we speak about Odessa, are based only on humanitarian needs. Food, uh, hygiene kits, stretch material to cover windows uh, damaged or destroyed by by drones, by explosion waves. International organizations distribute uh, all this through local organizations or directly. People appreciate the help and are very grateful for what they are doing, but at the same time, Many people say that it's not going to remove the cause of their damages for that population. We're now going to go to Jane
1: Belinogava reporting from her son, who's an IT manager in the city.
6: My name is Jane. I live in Kherson. Every day, civilians are killed or injured, and residential buildings are destroyed in our city. Current situation in Kherson is not very safe because every day we have uh, attacks from Russian part and left bank of Dnipro. There still continue the work of our army, and Gerson gets shaheds, sometimes bombs and uh, other weapons. As infrastructure and public services mostly not work. Uh, only the most uh, important, like some shops and markets. So it still need help. The local authorities uh, help with injured uh, buildings and uh, problem with citizens international efforts in our humanitarian crisis surely uh, we have and have the help uh, with products sometimes medicines and other issues
1: i'll just go through a little military analysis with you now 2023 started with a lot of optimism Ukraine was still politically riding high. There was a lot of armor coming in American Abrams tanks, British Challenger tanks, Leopard tanks, and there was the formation of the new armored brigades that were being trained up, ready for the much vaunted counter offensive. As spring rolled into summer, what we actually saw, it wasn't a bugle horn charge. The Ukrainians started shaping the battlefield, that is, they probed in various directions. They hit behind-the-lines Russian supply and ammunition points in an effort to discover weak spots and where it was difficult for the enemy to deploy their reserves. One of the biggest obstacles faced by the Ukrainian forces in the Zafirisya region was the so-called Sorovikan line. This was mile after mile after mile of dragon's teeth, white concrete triangles sunk into the ground with anti-tank trenches then another row of dragon's teeth, then more anti-tank trenches. In between and in front of these defences were vast and densely packed minefields. I saw infrared footage taken from drones that showed up to four anti-tank mines per square metre at some points. What the Ukrainians were trying to implement was a combined forces operation. That's where you have the ground forces, your air force, artillery, all working as one unit. But the only problem for the Ukrainians is... They didn't have an effective air force. They did not have control of the skies, which makes combined forces operations virtually impossible. This caused them to almost pause the counter-offensive and rethink their strategy for, for getting through these defences. On the second go, they put much more emphasis on the infantry clearing the trenches. Um, this allowed them to offer more support for the armour as it came through the minefields. The Ukrainians then moved artillery in and laid down a heavy barrage and as the Russians retreated, the Ukrainians using drones observed how the Russians went through their own defences and simply followed them through the clear tracks. This allowed the Ukrainians to build up a bulge or a salient into the Russian positions which they could reinforce on the flanks. The objective was the military and logistics hub based in Tokmark, a city south of Zaporizhia. Once they took Tokmak, that would give them fire control of the main highway that supplied Crimea, Crimea obviously being one of the main objectives in the counter-offensive. Moving on, we come to Kherson. The city was liberated in November 2022. However, the Russians simply moved their artillery to the other side of the river and the past year has seen a pretty constant wave of attacks upon the civilian population. The Russians have deployed just about every weapon in their arsenal, grad rockets, 152 artillery shells, cab aerial bombs which cause massive destruction. The city has seen a population drop from about 300,000 to estimates between 30 and 60,000. Militarily around this area, the Ukrainians have formed a bridgehead on the left bank of the river, that's the Russian-occupied zone. This has been done at a great cost, and it involves marines in rubber dinghies actually crossing the river at night, dodging the drones, getting to the other side, avoiding the heavy artillery that hits them as soon as they land, and digging into wet, marshy ground. It's possibly the most... Difficult kind of operation that any military could, could perform. They keep a tight lid on what's actually happening over there, what their intentions are. But drone footage shows total and absolute devastation around the city or the town of Krinky on the other side, which is one of the objectives of the Ukrainian military. Then we move into the east, um, to Donbas, where, if you remember last year, it was the Battle of Bakhmut. What we've seen this year is the town of Avdivka, which has been fought over since 2014 from the original Russian invasion. And this has been the control of the 3rd Assault Brigade, who've fought off, again, wave after wave of Russian armoured and infantry assaults. Massive losses on the Russian side, Ukrainian side. Numbers are limited, so we don't know. But we can assume also heavy losses there. I think where Ovdivka differs is that it is very strategic. Bakhmud was less so. Ovdivka is the gateway to Donbass and opens the way up for vital infrastructure cities such as Kramatorsk and Konstantinivka, which are both railway infrastructures. By many accounts, the battle of Ovdivka was lost due to the Ukrainians' inability to take down Russian aircraft and defend the skies because of a lack of manpads and Stinger anti-aircraft missiles on the ground. The net result of this was the Russians' ability to saturate the positions around Avdivka with cab aerial bombs, and this is the highest use of these weapons in any areas of the war so far. We then come to the northern part of the Eastern Front, which runs really from Kramatorsk up to Kupiansk into the Kharkiv Oblast. Again, massive Russian force build-up, in the early part of the counteroffensive, it was thought that these were a decoy force designed to, to draw Ukrainians away from the, the battlefronts in Zephyrusia and away from her son. But there's grown growing body of evidence that these troops are actually part of a, a Russian counter-offensive designed to push into the Kharkiv region and take the town of Kupiansk. As we move back west, we hit the city of Kharkiv, which was liberated Um, in late 2022. The problem for Kharkiv is its proximity to the Russian border which makes it extremely vulnerable to Russian S-300 air defence missiles reprogrammed to hit targets on the ground. This gives approximately four minutes warning which is not enough time for anybody to get into shelters. We then come almost full circle back to Kiev which in the early part of 2023, was quite capable of seeing off wave after wave of Shahid drone and missile attacks. As the year has progressed, however, things have got slightly different. The Russians, for a few months, flew um, cruise missiles and drones, apparently randomly, over Ukraine. What, in fact, they were doing was mapping their defence systems and learning how to avoid it. If you combine this with the lack of ammunition for Patriots and Irish systems, then we've seen the strike rates of cruise missiles and drones increase steadily throughout the year. One of Ukraine's major victories has been against the Russian Navy in the Black Sea. They developed waterborne drones, which are now capable of taking out major battleships and missile carriers. Important because it's the Russian Navy in the Black Sea that are firing a lot of the cruise missiles that are hitting Ukrainian cities. Without doubt, though, the biggest issue facing Ukraine at the moment is the political stalemate in America and the ability to keep up that supply of weapons and munitions to the front line. It is having a marked and very, very visible effect on the ground. We're now going to go to Azarina Zabrisky, an American journalist based in her son for an analysis of hybrid warfare.
7: To understand this war, we must go beyond the conventional military analysis. Russia employs a hybrid warfare strategy, utilizing both conventional and unconventional methods to target political, economic, cultural, and cyber aspects of life in Ukraine and globally. Russia targets Ukraine's physical infrastructure, command and control centers. Examples include missile attacks on power networks, explosion of Novokhovka Dam, the disruption of railroad systems in Ukraine and Poland in 2023, Nuclear blackmail is also employed with the placement of Russian nuclear assets in Belarus, for instance, and military operations at the Zaporizhzhia nuclear power plant. Economic coercion tactics involve blackmail, such as the failed fuel industry's threats to the European Union in winter 2022. Corruption and organized crime are part of the arsenal involving bribery and blackmail of politicians and influencers. Culture is also weaponized. We will be talking about it today. The Kremlin funds ballet and opera, for instance, to promote Russia's image. One of major strategies is cyber war. Russian state or non-state actors target Ukraine's and allies' digital and communication networks of critical infrastructure, government agencies, and military headquarters attacks often anonymous and challenging to detect, aim to disrupt operations and cause economic losses. In 2023-2024, Russian security services linked hackers targeted Ukrainian state agencies, oil giants like Naftogaz, telecom providers like Kyivstar, coordination headquarters for prisoners of war, national banks, Russia also targets NATO-Ukraine supporters. Overall, there was an increase in uh, European Union cyber attacks in 2023. Cyber aggression against Poland escalated before the elections in that country in 2023, leading to the crisis eventually with the blockage of the Ukrainian border right now. Ukraine's Ministry of Digital Transformation and main intelligence directorate work on the countermeasures. Ukraine also executes counterattacks on Russian industrial complex, for instance, carried out an attack on a major industrial sector company. International alliances are crucial to effectively counter Kremlin cyber threats. Google's project Shield protects 2,300 Ukrainian media and civil society websites. NATO conducted training for cyber teams from 11 countries and strengthened cyber resilience through the Cyber Coalition building. U.S. Cyber Command operation carried out a defensive hunt operation near Russia in 2023 in collaboration with Lithuania. Ukraine and international partners established Collective Defense Artificial Intelligence Fusion Center in 2023. And notably, in 2024, Denmark pledged a 13 million aid package to Ukraine to boost cyber defense capability. Now, the information warfare is harder to report on. It is defined as the strategic use of information space to influence collective and individual cognitive patterns in order to influence the political landscape. The Kremlin's objective here is to extend beyond control in occupied territory to dominate the minds and thought process of both Ukrainians and the global community. The aim is to change the public opinion, normalize the aggression, undermine support for Ukraine, and extend the so-called Russian world as far as possible. Russian Information Operations Troops Uh, political technologists, trolls, and bots are employed to influence political landscapes by controlling the narrative and thought process. What do they do? They restrict and manipulate information sources. For instance, Russia blocks access to Ukrainian channels in occupied territories, replacing them with the Russian television programs. The Kremlin also infiltrates media, uses information dump technique, uh, brainwashes and corrupts journalists, infiltrates social platforms like Facebook, workforce to influence content and suppress commentary. The Kremlin uses social media to create parallel reality. Doppelganger or double bot networks operate successfully since 2022. Fake accounts, Fake websites masquerade as authentic users and media. They disseminate disinformation articles, videos, and biased polls. They distort facts. Uh, For instance, capturing Novdyivka, a town reduced to rubble, is presented as a major victory, boosting Putin's prestige before the elections in Russia. Such networks can rapidly generate up to thousands of new accounts in a few hours. The Kremlin uses gaslighting as their favorite tactic, denies the war, calls for peace, complains about existential threats to Russia. Putin's narrative of the unity of Russians and Ukrainians challenges the significance of Ukrainian national identity and the value of sovereignty. In Ukraine, the Kremlin seeks to demoralize and undermine unity, to divide and conquer, Um, The disinformation aimed at sowing discord in Ukraine included spreading rumors about General Zeluzny's presidential run, questioning Western support, criticizing Ukraine's military. Circulation of false predictions and dubious polls, such as uh, recent Alexei Aristovich's claim of non-existent widespread Ukrainian support for peace negotiations, contribute to portraying Ukrainian leadership as acting against the population's wishes. To sow discord between allies, the distrust is built various fatigues, anywhere from Ukraine fatigue to American liberals' Trump fatigue, are circulating to demoralize Ukrainians and the global community. On a global scale, Russia weaponizes demographic crisis using migrants' Uh, border situations from Russia, Finland to Mexico, United States, to manipulate public opinions and refocus on the internal affairs. In the United States, the main target is interference with the 2024 U.S. presidential election and building the negative image of Ukraine in order to undermine financial support. In the European Union, the propagandists target the underprivileged a good example are the farmers from several countries joining Polish farmers to block the border with Ukraine. Kremlin's campaigns go often unseen or face denial when detected, as challenging established worldviews causes discomfort and cognitive dissonance in people. So understanding and countering information warfare tactics and methods are crucial for strategic defense of Ukraine. Establishing an Information Warfare League is long overdue.
1: Next, we're going to go to Alexander Sherba, a Ukrainian ambassador-at-large based in Kyiv, who's going to give us a rundown on politics.
8: Uh, I will never, never forget this moment. Uh, I think it was uh, February 27th, uh, when uh, during the night we heard in Kyiv uh, planes flying uh, towards Ostomel, and uh, we were we went to bed uh, without knowing uh, what kind of reality we will uh, wake up tomorrow. Vostomel is uh, an airfield very close uh, to uh, the uh, city, city line. And then, in the morning, waking up and uh, seeing uh, this famous uh, uh, video by Zelensky saying, I'm here, hello, <laughs> winking. Uh, and that was extremely encouraging, and ever since, I mean, terrifying moment and at, uh, at the same time proud moment, the moment of unity. But of course, once uh, our Russians weren't standing twenty kilometers uh, from Kiev downtown, uh, things started changing. We became our usual selves. We became bickering again. We became criticizing uh, all aspects of our lives. We love to hate our governments. We love to speak about how terrible our governments are and how terrible are people who elect these governments. And uh, if you spent uh, some time in Ukraine, you know this. Probably this is what Putin counted upon, that we will fall, fall apart once uh, pushed in a very strong uh, uh, manner, like it happened on February 24, uh, 2022. Uh, but the opposite happened. Uh, Ukrainians pulled together We saw amazing leadership on the part of our president. This is who we are, and we became who we are. But it doesn't mean that uh, we uh, are somehow weak uh, facing uh, Putin. We are not. We love elections. We love uh, uh, going to vote booths, and uh, we love to topple whatever uh, authorities uh, we have. Only one president uh, in our history uh, was re-elected. And this is a part of being Ukraine, part of being a democratic state. But things change when the war is being waged in your country. And uh, by the law, uh, we cannot hold elections with uh, a war happening uh, right now, with uh, millions of people being outside of Ukraine. Quite frankly, uh, as ambassador, I would be terrified how to uh, organize the election day for eighty thousand Ukrainians uh, who found refuge in Ukraine. And found refuge in Austria. It's just a small fraction of the uh, of the people outside uh, of Ukraine. Uh, in Poland, it's uh, over a million people. In Germany, it's uh, hundreds of thousands. How do you organize uh, elections for uh, those people? How do you organize elections and electoral process for people on the front line? and uh, also quite important quite frankly and uh, it's a factor that uh, ukrainian elections uh, tend to be rather toxic it would with high probability uh, split uh, the nation uh, in a moment uh, that uh, is extremely dangerous for it so i think both uh, legally and politically and uh, uh, mentally, uh, it's uh, the right uh, approach uh, to hold off with elections uh, till the situation stabilizes. People in my uh, environment are absolutely uh, clear, uh, including uh, the friends uh, who are on the front line, that uh, we have to fight. We are absolutely capable of uh, winning this war, and also very united in the notion that after winning this war, we shouldn't be uh, rebuilding Ukraine. We should be building a new Ukraine, not uh, the kind that we had before. In my opinion, it is the whole society, at least in Kiev, is uh, really unified. People are tired. Uh, people are exhausted financially, physically. Uh, people on the front line, they are absolute titans and, and and heroes, and I don't know how they make it. But uh, I don't see any major shifts, quite frankly, uh, national unity. Ukraine is a very, very mixed bag, uh, all kinds of uh, ethnicities, uh, backgrounds. The government is a reflection of, of what we are. Uh, we have a ethnically uh, Jewish president, we have a, a minister of defense who is ethnic Crimean Tatar, and we have commander-in-chief who is ethnic Russian. We uh, still remain uh, politically diverse, uh, free society, where it's uh, completely allowed to be critical even beyond the line critical of existing president and campaign against him and vote against even uh, russia-affiliated things were not banned completely i mean if you look at the situation with the uh, moscow patriarchy so how the country many many churches are still active and people still go there and it's also a part of you know the decision the people make not the government The language situation has shifted dramatically after February 24th. People are switching from Russian to Ukrainian in huge numbers. People who speak Russian, uh, they are not less Ukrainian patriots uh, uh, than uh, people who speak Ukrainian. We see all over the front line uh, these absolutely amazing Ukrainian heroes uh, who speak Russian and Nobody is uh, crazy enough to criticize them for therefore, uh, the language history. Well, aside from a number of freaks on Facebook who sometimes raise this uh, you know, issue, but uh, thank God, it seems that we have turned this page. In this war, everything is about spirit. It's about feeling of being right, fighting the right cause, and having the begging uh, of the decent uh, people and the countries of the world. And in 2022, this feeling that the world has our back it was a huge factor. We felt like we weren't alone in this fight. And 2023 was worrisome in that aspect, because when you look at the polls most countries, the support for Ukraine remains unshaken. But when you look at social media, when you read the newspapers, the picture is a little bit different about ukrainian polish situation uh, it is another aspect that staggering quite frankly gut-wrenching for many because it's putin who is trying to kill us on the front line but it's uh, these uh, you know blockades on the border that are strangling us from outside putin is trying to put a happy face but uh, in reality sanctions uh, hurt him immensely there are uh, a number of you know Russian economists who are saying that uh, uh, the year 2024 can be the year when uh, he really starts running out of money. Please keep up the sanctions and please arrest Russian assets and uh, give them to Ukraine. Arresting Russian assets and giving them to Ukraine is a win 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 punishment for Russia. It's a help for Ukraine. And it's a lesson for, the, for all dictators out there who are considering to become new Hitlers like Putin.
1: Let's next go to Andriy Novak, the chairman of the Committee of Economists of Ukraine, translated and read by Zarina Zabrisky.
7: By 2024, Ukrainian economy has already started to revive. The country's economy lost almost 30% in the beginning of the invasion in 2022. However, Starting around the middle of 2023, the economy stopped its fall and began to grow slowly. The same year, in 2023, the economy growth was 5% approximately. The same growth of 4.5% is expected in 2024. This trend is important. Reversing the situation, was mainly possible due to the Ukrainian armed forces effective targeted strikes on the Russian fleet. These efforts unblocked the Black Sea and made it possible to resume large volumes of Ukrainian exports from some Ukrainian sea and river ports. We are speaking of not only agricultural products, but also industrial products in particular Ukrainian metal. The resumption of exports had positive impact on the entire economy. The state budget of Ukraine carries a deficit of around 50%. However, thanks to the external support, the Ukrainian government fully fulfills the expenditures of the budget There are no delays in payments of pensions, salaries, or social assistance. And there is even small increase in pensions and salaries, approximately at the level of inflation. Repair and construction work continue in Ukraine, including the repairs of the aftermath of almost daily attacks by the Russian Federation. All of this is possible because Ukraine receives military, and direct financial support from the 60 countries' coalition, supporting Ukraine. The delay with financial aid from the United States did not have any negative impact on the state budget. Recently, Japan quickly allocated new programs to support Ukraine, of which almost 5 billion will arrive by the end of February. The United Kingdom, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia have already adopted new operational support programs. In 2024, almost all countries from the coalition have increased assistance items to Ukraine in their budgets. The European Union adopted a new program for four years worth 50 billion euros for Ukraine. The banking system of Ukraine is very stable. The profitability of the banking system in 2023 increased compared to 2022 due to the expansion of budget programs primarily for the Ukrainian army, the entire security block, and external financial assistance. In 2023, Ukrainian farmers collected 80% harvest compared to the period in 2021 before the invasion, despite the fact that a large part of the territory of Ukraine is temporarily occupied, including the part in the east and south of Ukraine, where a lot of agricultural lands are located. Another interesting fact, last year, Ukrainian farmers were able to produce higher yields per hectare for most crops compared to 2022 or in the period before the invasion. The works are carried out with risk and losses under shelling and on mined fields. Ukrainian agricultural companies of various sizes and large agricultural holdings, small or medium-sized agricultural enterprises, are increasingly improving and developing production and processing. Ukrainian agricultural products are already defeating competition on the European market. There are labor productivity and product quality that matter. We see what is happening at the Polish-Ukrainian border. Non-competitive methods such as border blockades by Poland, Slovakia or Hungary are unfair and financed by the Kremlin as the part of the hybrid war campaign. Unfortunately, many people in Europe do not understand the real reason for these provocations. The metallurgy industry suffered the greatest losses in the Ukrainian economy because the Russian army physically destroyed many metallurgical plants in the east of Ukraine. The enterprises still intact produce only 20-25% all metals compared to 2021. The energy sector survived this winter. There are no problems with the electricity, gas, or fuel supplies this year. In winter 2022-23, the Ukrainian energy sector suffered a series of massive attacks carried out by Russian troops. According to Ukraine's cabinet of ministers and government, of Ukrainian energy facilities were destroyed or damaged. But thanks to the prompt large-scale restoration work and to the assistance of Ukraine's partners, a lot has been done for resuming the operation of energy facilities. Many countries sent appropriate equipment and machinery to Ukraine and it was possible to restore most of what was damaged. Since last spring, power outages have stopped in Ukraine. And in winter 2024, there were virtually no blackouts anywhere for a single hour due to the Russian shelling. Of course, corruption is a problem that exists in Ukraine. Important to note two factors here. First, in any country during a war Overall, crime increases, including economic crime. Secondly, the effectiveness of the fight against corruption in Ukraine is now much higher than before the war. The Ukrainian security services regularly arrest corrupt officers at the regional and city levels. The fight against corruption in Ukraine is at the highest level compared to the pre-war period. It is the subject to Russian propaganda amplification used to undermine the support of Ukraine globally.
1: Finally, we go to Oksana Taranenka, a Ukrainian opera director who's going to give us something on culture.
9: I truly think that every Ukrainian now is on the front line. This war shaped every life. All of us, we are having either members of the family, friends, colleagues, relatives in the front line in Ukrainian army forces. So we are helping them in any possible way. As for cultural front, it's quite legitimate to say that we need this cultural front to be now outside the country. Because Russian Federation spent huge amount of money and resources to distort the image of Ukraine and to bring all the fake information about who we are. I met many people abroad who are confused what's going on between Russians and Ukrainians. It's understandable. When people didn't check properly the sources of information, they can easily find something Russian, so they don't know what is Ukraine like. And speaking about cultural front, for me that means that every Ukrainian artist, painter, musician, director has this mission to speak about Ukraine. Because the more people know about Ukraine, the more we have chance to survive and win. Because this war is an informational war as well. So we not only have to survive and win, we have to tell the world about who we are. For 400 years, Russians were trying to erase Ukrainian identity. And if so far they didn't succeed, that means this identity is really strong. And I'm pretty sure that Putin is aware and clearly understanding that Ukrainians are not like Russians. We don't have this slavery uh, mindset. We are more democratically thinking. We are more maybe even more anarchist thinking compared to them and um we will never be obedient and we actually wish we, we have shown our a uh, different identity Uh, from our resilience, from our resistance. We will never stay under Russian governing, whatever it would cost. My generation and generation of my parents, we were raised under the waving flag of Soviet ideology, praising Communist Party and its slogans, thinking that we are all equal, which was not true, because. Uh, there was huge disbalance. Everything Russian was praised, um, valued and accepted. And if any of the artists, poet or writer would manifest themselves as Ukrainian artists, they were all repressed, killed. And we didn't know even how massive these processes were. Art cannot be be in vacuum. Art is a reflection of life. So, under 2014, uh, the perception of Russian culture, and actually everything Russian, changed drastically. Everything which reminded about aggressor, everything which was mentioned in a positive connotation about aggressor, was just not possible after what they did, after how many people they killed. And uh, yes, it was not easy, because you have to kind of artificially pump up this Russian phobia inside you, because otherwise you will be just defeated easily by them. Firstly, you are defeated in your mind, and then you are defeated in your land and in your life. We have no choice, but banning any Russian Russian culture, Russian literature, Russian repertoire in our theaters, let's say Russian ballet, Russian opera, at least until the victory. We have to remember that war is still going on. People are still being killed. And at least until the victory, we should definitely ban and put cultural sanctions to anything which is russian the compromise is a difficult subject because for example in my area in opera industry many ukrainian singers and musicians are working in europe and united states and of course somehow sometime ago or now they're sharing the stage or the august repeat dressing room with Russian uh, musicians because there are many of Russian musicians abroad and we don't really know if they are pro-Putinist or they are Ukraine followers, Ukrainian musicians who are being involved in the same projects with Russians. They are now being banned even in Ukraine immediately they are becoming persona non grata in Ukraine because this is considered as cultural compromising, moral compromising, uh, and it's considered also cultural collaboration with aggressor. International institutions and international opera industry and ballet industry, they are not helping Ukraine to win because they used to praise Russian music and Russian ballet and Russian art very much, uh, forgetting that behind Russian cultural expansion, there is lots of Russian money. My understanding is that West should be more aware what is their role in supporting Russia in their crimes. Because however far it seems just listening to tchaikovsky music or buying the tickets to tchaikovsky ballet how far is it from russian aggression capturing ukrainian cities keeping hostage ukrainian kids or dropping bombs on peaceful ukrainian cities there are still these facts are still um, the parts of the same chain the more you support russians The more you support Russian culture, the more you support terrorism and aggression. There is no Ukrainian opera ever staged in any world opera house. And whatever me and my colleagues are doing, trying to promote Ukrainian music and Ukrainian opera, which has rich history and very talented composers, still we didn't find the possibility to find the theatre who would agree to do that. We are now uh, experiencing the powerful um, new wave of looking new senses, understanding who we are, and bringing new um, dramaturgy, new opera, new music, trying to find our voice and to um, go with this voice out of Ukraine, because otherwise we just, we would just not survive because the help is needed tremendously. And uh, we all feel this mission of Ukrainian artists to manifest Ukrainian senses and to claim for help, to ask for help and to bring something new and rich to the world culture.
1: That's all for the show. Thanks for listening and let's keep Ukraine in our minds. This isn't going away on its own. The fate of Europe depends on it. The fate of the world depends on it. So please keep it, keep it up there. Keep supporting.
0: Paul Conroy ending this special edition of the Byline Times podcast, marking the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. My thanks to Paul for helping on the production of this programme and for his excellent narration, and thanks in particular to Zarina Zabriskie, who has gathered this amazing reportage. Thank you, Zarina. My name is Adrian Goldberg, and this has been a We Bring Audio production for The Byline Times. The Byline Times podcast is supported by subscriptions to The Byline Times, our fantastic monthly newspaper, where you can read reports from Zarina and many others too. If you do want to support us and read a fantastic Periodical, do head over to bylinetimes.com, our newsbreaking website, where you can find details of how to subscribe. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye bye.